Amen. Thank you, guys. Uh, like I said earlier, welcome to everybody. Um, excuse my extension cord. <laughs> I forgot to charge my iPad, so there we go. Uh, glad you all are here today. Um, if you haven't been around, we've been working through the, the very first book in the Bible called Genesis. Uh, very first words that we have collected that God has, has given us. And uh, today we're going to be in Genesis chapter 16. That's where we find ourselves. And it's going to be like, if I had to be, you know, the like, if you were on a desert island question, what would you take with you? That sort of stuff. If I could have like one chapter of the Bible, this might be it. I love this story that, that I'm going to get to share with you here today. Um, but before we get there, I just have a little backstory that I need to share with you uh, that kind of helps us in Genesis 16. And that is in a, cha- a story that happened in G- Genesis chapter 12. And uh, I want to go, I'll paraphrase it for you here a minute, but um, Abram is the guy that we've been following. It's this first person, this plan B that God chose to start over with humanity through this one person in his family that he would uh, grow the good news of Jesus eventually uh, for the whole world, that, that this would be his chosen people that would bring all things hopefully back, not hopefully, certainly back to the way that God created them, the shalom that existed even in the Garden of Eden that we read about in the very first pages. So in, ja- in chapter 12, though, there's two, kind of two things that happened in that chapter. Um, this person called Abram heard the call of God, and he left his father's house to step into this call that God gave him, that he would become a father of a nation, and that he would, this nation would be a people that would be a blessing to the entire world. So that was kind of first part of this Chapter 12 is him stepping out from his homeland. And then the second half of, of chapter 12, which is like the scene one of Abram's life, there's this famine as Abram steps into the, the land eventually that God would call him into. Uh, he has to go out of that land into Egypt because there's a famine and there's more resources there. And it's in that scene, um, I'm just paraphrasing here for you because there's really one detail I want to carry from this. Uh, Abram pretended that his wife, Sarah, was um, his sister so that the Pharaoh wouldn't kill him. You know, we do that every once in a while, right, guys? Um, so he, uh, he pretended that that was the case. Uh, God didn't tell him to do that in the story, but he did that in order to protect himself um, because he thought certainly that Pharaoh would want to kill him and take his wife. And so uh, he took matters into his own hands and... Eventually, it says that uh, Pharaoh took Abram's wife, Sarah, into his uh, palace, implying uh, many things there. Uh, and we read this in chapter 12. It says, um, here, flip my thing here. Uh, when Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake. And Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. So in the rest of that chapter, Pharaoh eventually gets sick. Um, and uh, because he found out that Sarah was Abram's wife, and he wasn't happy about that situation, so he sent them away. But when he sent them away, they went away with those things that we just listed. And one of them is female servants. That's the thing I want to grab from there is Egyptian female servants. That's the reason I'm telling you that is he acquired this stuff uh, from that place. So that's the backdrop. And now I'm going to pray and then we'll keep moving here. 
Uh, Lord, I pray that you will empower the words that I'm going to continue to say here this morning. Thank you for this story of encouragement, and I pray that I'll be able to communicate it in a way that portrays your heart. Um, It's not hard to do, especially in this story, to see that you are, um, I don't want to even spoil it yet, you are a good God. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so now, fast forward a couple chapters. We're in Genesis chapter 16, verse 1. It says this. Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. So the original promise, remember, was that Abraham would be this father of this nation uh, of many children as countless as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashores. Remember that we've been talking about? And yet, he's not able to have children yet. And this is ten years after that original promise. So uh, his wife uh, Sarai says... Uh, excuse me, it says he had no, no children, but she had an Egyptian slave, which would have been acquired to their family in the scene that we just read a second ago. Egyptian slave named Hagar. I want to pause for a second, which I think is always worth doing when we see that word show up, when we see the word slavery uh, show up. The words uh, slave here in ancient times really applied to anyone under the authority of another, meaning not all servants or slaves were oppressed People. The surrounding nations, uh, surrounding Israel, um, did have that sort of gross and undignifying uh, practices of slavery, but um, God's people, in fact, themselves would spend 400 years in Egyptian slavery uh, later on in the story that we find out in the Bible. But Israel was different. God's people were different. When it, when it talks about slavery in their context, it means something more like, uh, do you remember a couple weeks ago, if, if you were here, I'll just refresh all of you if you weren't, but uh, we talked about the Beit Av, which is the father's house, right? And the father's house in this Hebrew context came with all these benefits that you would get protection, you would get provision, and you would even get redemption. You'd be rescued if you were ever kidnapped or taken as a collateral for a loan. So stepping into a household like that, like Hagar would have, really is... A protective measure for her. It's not the same thing that we hear when we hear the word slavery. I just need to say that so that we're not thinking that situation here. She wasn't an oppressed slave, but considered to be a part of Abram's extended household. So it was a good thing. Hagar was protected and provided for as a part of his Beit Av, a part of his home, Abram's home. So when she becomes a part of the home, she's, she's not stepping into something violent and oppressive. Um, I just want to make that clear. But as the story unfolds here, she's also not stepping into a house that's perfect. So there'll be details of the story that are, are hard to hear. But I think through, through all of this, we're going to see that there is a good God that, um, again, I want to say the words, but I'm not going to yet. Uh, verse 2, let's keep going. So she, Sarai, said to Abraham or Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan for ten years, Sarai, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. Did I go through another verse? Okay, I think we're good there. So that's 10 years, like I said, after the initial promise. So 10 years, Abram and Sarah are waiting uh, to get pregnant so that they can start to see this promise start to take, take hold. 
Uh, Abram is 85, Sarah's 76. That's usually a little beyond the time period that you can have children. Um, at this time, though, it's interesting. At this time, there was an ancient, like, 19th century B.C. Assyrian marriage contract. You know, the type of stuff you Google in your free time. Um, this contract that stipulated that if a wife could not provide her husband with offspring within two years, this is their contract, uh, she must purchase a slave woman for this very purpose. So Abram and Sarai would have been familiar with this contract as they migrated from that Assyrian region into the area that they're going. It might have even been in their original contract. Who knows? The scholars think that it's quite plausible that Sarah is simply invoking their marriage contract. But it is a bit fuzzy on whether Abram and Sarah were just being impatient and unreasonable. But it could be that she was providing the thing that according to the context that they were in was normal. Think about this as it pertains to something that you might feel called to. They were waiting for 10 years at that point for God to do the thing he said he would do. So I do I have three questions that I want to ask you guys as, as I move forward here. Pretty personal, actually. So how long is too long to wait for God? Have you ever started to create your own path when it feels like God is taking too long? Me too, (laughs) to be honest. I think we've all made that mistake, that God's timing, these promises that we read in the Bible, just seem like they're taking too long, and then we take things into our own hands. We've all made that mistake, and many of us have seen what that ends up doing in our lives. And I I think it's important for us to remember as we keep reading here that these characters in this book are real people. They're real fallible people like you and me, trying to figure things out. So how long is too long to wait for God? Let's continue. Verse 4. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now she knows she is pregnant. She despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think is best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled. That word mistreated implies both psychological and physical abuse. It's funny. Fallible, broken people in this story. So even though Hagar is supposed to be treated well in the Beit Av, in the house of the father, under Abram's care, she wasn't. So there she finds herself in a situation she didn't want to be in, treated a way that she didn't want to be. Verse 7 says, The angel of the Lord found her. So remember, it says she fled. Hagar fled. She ran away. 
The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, the most, one of the most deep questions, I think. Where have you come from and where are you going? The angel asks Hagar, where have you come from and where are you going? That's a deep question. That's a really deep question. Hagar is running away into a desert that looks like this. She's pregnant with no resources, coming out of a situation where she was mistreated, perhaps abused. She's running, and she's met by an angel, which is the first occurrence that we have in our Bible of an angel meeting somebody. Oh, the Bible's so cool. Let's try to imagine the tone of the angel in this setting. Do you think it'd be something like this? Hagar! Where are you coming from and where are you going? You're going to die out there. What are you doing? No. The tone, no doubt, in my mind as we read of God's character revealed in these stories is soft and concerning. It reminds you, we see this so often in the Bible, don't we? It reminds you so often of like, I feel like I've heard that question before. That sort of like, where are you and where are you going? Doesn't it remind you of the beginning, the first two people, Adam and Eve, when in the garden they hid from God? They were scared because of what they had done, so they covered themselves up and they hid from God and God enters into that space and says, where are you? Which is fascinating. Because can we really hide from the creator of the universe? Can we really hide anything from the being that has to have all of the intelligent properties and supernatural things to create the universe that we see and that we have? God doesn't have the same sort of limitations like that. But again, God is, like we say so often, like a divine parent. Sometimes we say like a good father or a good mother. We are his kids. It's not difficult to imagine a child running away because they're hurt and afraid. And again, it's pretty cool to notice that the first appearance of an angel in our scriptures is to a foreign woman who is desperate and being mistreated. So after Hagar is pregnant in the desert, running away, she's collapsed and exhausted on the dry desert floor. A voice of God through an angel appears to her with kindness and concern and says, Hagar, there's nothing out here for you. Where have you come from and where are you going?
And she answers honestly in verse 8, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. I've had it. I'm sick of it. I'd be better off running in the desert, wandering, going, I don't even know where. I got another question for you. Does that does that feel like your life or has that felt like your life before? Almost like when the angel met her there or God met Adam and Eve in the garden. Where is your life going? Not in a judgmental fire and wrath, but in a sincerely caring, loving way. Hey, what are you doing out here? Where is your life going? Isn't that weird? Because that's not the voice that alone I feel sometimes. Seems like God's mad. But here in these beautiful stories, we find a voice that meets people in the middle of the desert when they're running away. Is this story hitting home for you? Do you find yourself in a desert today? Do you not know where your life is going? Are you running from something? Now, I don't, I'm not saying all that to make you anxious. I'm not saying all that to freak any one of us out. I'm saying all that to encourage you right now because we find so far in this story that even though this is a person running away from the legitimate problems in her life, God pursues her to ask that question, where are you going? And the story does not actually end with Hagar dying on that desert floor. That wouldn't be a very good story, would it? If God showed up, asked this fainted, pregnant woman in the middle of the desert, where are you going and where have you come from? Okay, see ya. That'd be a bad story, wouldn't it? But let's keep reading. Then the angel of the Lord, verse 9, told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. I do just want to say before I keep reading, I don't think that means go back and um, hear my heart here, guys. Don't apply this to mean go back into an abusive situation. If you're in a situation like that, I just want to open myself up to talk, okay? So if, if that's you, come see me. We'd love to walk alongside of you in ways that we can. But what I do think God is saying here is that he's giving her hope in a situation that seemed hopeless. So he says, go back and submit to her. Then the angel of the Lord added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count, like the same promise that Abram has. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. 
you shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your misery. You hear me say the Bible's cool like three times every time I preach. Israelite parents tended to select the names for their children based on the circumstances surrounding their birth or the words spoken about them uh, near the time of their birth. Hagar wasn't an Israelite by birth technically, but her child was, and she was a part of Abram's household. The angel told her to name the child Ishmael. Do you know what that name means in, he- in Hebrew? It means God hears. God told her to name her kid God hears. He met this hopeless woman running away from home and tells her to name her child, I hear you. Oh, for the Lord has heard your misery. In the middle of the desert as she's running away from her problems, the angel of the Lord, the first angel we see in the Bible, meets her and says that God hears you. Ah, God hears you. Forever will that be a reminder to her when she speaks the name of her child. That God hears her as he heard her cry in the desert. Verse 12 says this. He will be a wild donkey of a man. Kind of spoils the mood a little bit there, but he will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he will live in hostility towards his brothers. The angel gives these strange details about this, what this child's life will be like, which to us might seem like, well, that's, that's really bad news. That kind of like spoils the whole situation. If you're her sitting in that situation, you might think, well, that stinks. I find her response after that so fascinating, though. She doesn't even seem to be bothered by that information. Listen to her response. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Ber Laharoi. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. God meets her in the desert. He tells her to name her child, God hears. And in return, she gives God the title, the one who sees me. Oh my goodness gracious. That is so incredibly powerful. Friends, how long have you been waiting for God? 
Where is your life going right now? These are the same realities that our spiritual ancestors faced. We are in good company of people that at times feel like God's not showing up yet. And at times take matters into our own hands. And at times we run away from our problems instead of turning to God with them. But for some reason, he still meets us there. He hears our cry. He hears your cry. And he sees you. He sees you. The creator of the universe. The one who made the stars. This inconceivably powerful being sees you. Our spiritual ancestors experienced those same pains and God heard them and God saw them. And my dear friends today, no matter where you might find yourself wandering, God hears you and God sees you. The future of your life and my life will certainly have details that are difficult just like hers did. But God's plan for you, taking the whole story that he's writing into account, is good. The goodness of your future far outweighs the difficulties that any one of us will face. Paul in the New Testament says, our present suffering is not worth comparing to the future glory that will be revealed to us. So as we end our service today, I want to actually send you home with a question this week to think about. If you had to give God a name, what would it be? There was a woman in the story we've been talking about who in this moment was captured by the fact that God saw her. God heard her. I kind of did a practice run of this sermon earlier this week with the attic kids. I asked them that same question. If you had to give God a name, what would it be? Some of them were the God who forgives me. Oh, there's a story there, isn't there? Or the God who helps me. Oh, there's a story there. Or the God who guides me. There's a story there. What is it for you? If you had to give God a name this week, what would it be? Or simply put, is it enough to just say, I think he would be the one that sees me? I want to invite you this week to meditate on that question. And step closer to the God who hears and sees you no matter what desert you might find yourself in. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the ways that we get to see that truth 
happen today as potently and powerfully as it did in this story thousands of years ago. Thank you for seeing us through the deserts and not just letting us sit there to die of thirst, but she also renamed a well that was called the one who sees me. May we this week mark this season. Even if it feels like we're stuck in the desert with no hope, would you give us a well? Would you give water to the weary wanderers that might be in this room and give them a word? Give them a name to give back to them. You provided her with a name for her son and she provided you with a name back, which is the one who sees me. I pray, Jesus, that you would reveal yourself through your spirit to my friends here today. That they, in the deepest part of their soul, would realize that you see them and you don't just see them in order to want to judge them. You want to heal us. You want us to become like your son, Jesus. But first and foremost, you see us as your children. I pray that that would be refreshing, living water to my friends here, hearing this message today, that you are a God who hears their misery. You are a God who sees them and brings hope to the desert. In Jesus' name, amen.